Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. My name is Zachary Tinker. And my name is Jeremy Swingle. And this is episode 87 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 87, as you could tell from our intro, we are pleased and excited to welcome back to the podcast uh, Zachary Tinker and Jeremy Swingle. And uh, Scott and I will be uh, working with both of these gentlemen to go through what uh, you could call a series of debates around a particular concept, the concept of spiritual significance of verses and how that relates to a key verse list, or we refer to that sometimes as a KVL or a key verse list. So if you don't know what that is, if you haven't heard of what a KVL is before, don't worry, we're going to talk a little bit about what that is before we get into the debate. But what we are going to be doing is kind of a, an interesting debate format, or at least I think it's interesting, um, but hopefully it will be useful for our purposes here. And that is the convince me concept or the convince me debate format. So essentially the way this works is um, I will be acting as host and moderator of the debate. And uh, Scott, Zach, and Jeremy will be taking different sides, uh, pro and con to different questions as we progress through this debate structure. And the way this works is very similar to a typical debate where you have a pro side and a con side, but instead of trying to convince an audience that doesn't necessarily respond back or anything like that, and sometimes you can have kind of a talking head problem, instead, the goal of the debate is to convince me to change my mind. Now, this doesn't isn't required to be successful, right? You don't actually have to get me to change my mind and you don't even have to get me to change my mind all the way. It's really more try to influence me on a scale of say one to 10. So let's say I, at the beginning of a particular question, I am sort of neutral on it. I'm sort of a five and the pro side's a 10 and the con side's a one. By the end of the debate of that particular topic, you want to, uh, each side will want to try to sway me either to be a six or to be a four uh, based on, on whatever kind of arguments that they can make. I'm a non, uh, uh, I'm a non, non-biased moderator. In other words, I'm coming to the table with biases, with opinions. I will try to be as transparent about those and honest about those as I can. And I'm going to be asking follow-up questions and kind of digging in to try to uh, understand each side of the argument. Now, we're going to be also posing some questions that none of us think are good ideas, uh, but those are not particularly interesting if all of us agree to them. So uh, fortunately, several folks have uh, agreed to play the position of devil's advocate on certain debate topics so that we can actually engage the idea and hopefully get something useful uh, out, of, out of the debate process. All right, so here we go. Let's talk about the context of which uh, all of these debate topics originate. So this is around the concept of that that pesky little phrase in the current rulebook that does not exist in the rulebook that is currently out for ratification, and that is the concept of spiritual significance or spiritually significant verses in the material that are eligible to be written as quote or finished questions. And you know, if, as you, if you listened uh, to the podcast in the past. You have heard Scott and I talk about the idea that, well, that's really vague, it's difficult to define, but the fact that it is defined means there is some kind of difference between a spiritually significant verse for a quote and finish versus not, and therefore there is this concept of, well, 
not every verse makes a good quote or finished question. Therefore, uh, those that do could be formed, the verses that do could be formed into a key verses list. And we're going to be talking about different sort of arguments and associated concepts around that. So the first debate question is, should a, a practical KVL be all verses? Now, what does that mean? So a practical KVL is, at the moment, let's let's kind of set aside quote and finish questions for the moment, and let's let's focus on situation questions. Not every verse in the material makes for a legal situation question. Uh, there are many verses that make for a legal situation question, and even fewer of, of the verses make for good situation questions. But let's just say at the moment, we do not have any sort of list or rules requirements to say, well, these certain verses can be written as situation questions, and these others by exclusion uh, cannot be written as situation questions. Ultimately, because of the way the rulebook is written, there becomes in effect a practical key verse list, quote unquote, for situation questions, verses that can be or cannot be legally written into situation questions. Uh, by not having an official KVL but in, uh, for situation questions, but instead having a practical situation list, uh, we are essentially taking the risk that some legal but not terribly good situation questions are going to be written. So similarly, a practical KVL could be defined as the same way, except that a practical KVL really could be every single verse of the material. It is entirely possible to write a quote question legally on every single verse of the material. So this, thus the question, should a practical KVL be all verses of the material? So where I'm at, where I'm I am on this one. I am on a scale of say one to 10, where one is a yes and 10 is a no. I'm like a eight, probably a nine. And so arguing for the one side of the spectrum is Scott. So Scott, what are some arguments you could make for the pro side of this? So again, a practical KVL would be having written a quote or a finish on every single verse. Yes. So I think every single question type, when it's defined, comes with some sort of um, either what's valid or and or what's good. So for interrogatives, I think they say like must not be overly long. Um, for situations, it can't run for more than two verses, has to start within two verses of the start of the quotation. Reference questions has to be an exact phrase occurring more than once, either in the chapter or um, the material, things like that, right? Um, but they kind of guide you towards both valid and good questions, but um, it doesn't guide you towards good questions all the time. And I think if we don't have the language on spiritual significance for um, finishing quote questions, then anyone deciding how to like pick which verses get written is basically employing their own philosophy of what makes a good finisher a quote that doesn't exist in the rule book. So if we don't have spiritual significance and stand on its own, I think at that point, people shouldn't be making their own value judgments on this verse is a good finish question versus this verse is a bad one, because I don't know that any criteria exists to make it. Now, when it comes to say interrogative questions, even though there isn't language that says don't write awkward interrogative questions, that's kind of informed by language because we are speaking at the material verbatim can start anywhere. And so just starting it at a really, really awkward English 
grammar spot is kind of automatically confusing. But for finishing quote questions where um, it's a very finite scope and quizzers know a finished question is going to start at the beginning of the verse and a quote question, I get the reference. Then to me, I don't really care if the verse starts um, in an awkward spot, right? In the middle of a sentence, because we've kind of already defined the expectation to the quizzer. And so I think all of them should be a practical um, KVL and not, not have question writers make their own um, value judgments. Okay. And taking the uh, con side or the no side, Zach uh, and Jeremy. So Zach and Jeremy, what are your, uh, what are your counter arguments here? So we, we define practical KVL as something that would allow us to write a, a every single verse into a, into a key verse when that can be quoted. Um, and that's great when we have like great, great formatting with the sentences. Um, but one example I kind of looking at is in Matthew four, um, you have verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, and all of those encompass one thought. And we don't have a, a quote, these four verses. Um, and, and it's kind of hard to say, all right, you can quote these two, but those two verses are not a, a complete thought. They stop in the middle of a sentence. Um, and so we could, in theory, start to write quotes and finish the verses for every question or every verse. But then you're left with these really awkward ones where it's the middle of someone's words in the middle of their sentence. And uh it's so easy to to just uh, um, to forget where that actually starts. And so we're writing some really poor questions if we're trying to force every single verse into a, a quote or finish the verse. And so I think that would be my biggest argument is, well, there's some some sentences that encompass more than two verses. And how do you write those into uh, our our rule set of quotes and quote these two verses? Yeah, agreed with uh, agreed with you there, Zach. One thing that Scott pointed out that I actually think is a good argument and something that that deserves some interaction is when he said that you know since we have this finite set of verses in the material, and the quizzers know you know every single place that a verse starts could be the place that a finish the verse question starts. Of course, with the exception of verses that start with the same five words as another verse, then you can only ask those as a quote. But because of that, the quizzers should know what to expect. And so the, you know, perhaps the grammatical awkwardness of one verse or another shouldn't be too big of a concern. And I think that's also the, the same case with other questions. I think with situation questions, sometimes you'll get, you know, situation questions that are just like, yes, Lord, and that's the whole situation. <laughs> and it doesn't really uh, mean a whole lot when you strip it from the context, but I still think those are good situation questions um, because we want the quizzer to identify this one specific spot where this one specific quote was said. And so I, I think in an analogous way, um, there's a sense in which it might not have to matter too much whether a question is awkward or not, whether it finished the verse question, as long as the uh, rules of the question type are clear. But I think, uh, I think the reason why I take the no side on this is that it seems obvious to me from the writing of the rule book, um, as well as uh, just, I guess, the, the spirit of quizzing and the benefit of the other quizzers and the spectators uh, even, that I think it's nice that we require finish the verse and quote questions to be sort of like a succinct little uh, perhaps pivy uh, theological truth, right? We, we want it to be a complete thought that doesn't just seem like we're, we're dropping right in randomly in the middle of the material. We want it to express a complete idea or, or theological thought. Um, and so, you know, there's plenty of examples of verses like Matthew 6, 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, that's the whole verse. <laughs> it doesn't tell you what he said to his disciples. Um, and you would have to have 26 too, even to get the content of what Jesus was saying. And it seems to me obvious uh, that, that this is not 
what these question types are intended, uh, that, that we're supposed to be saying things that, that aren't just little snippets of an idea, but are rather a complete idea and even spiritually a, a difficult <laughs> criteria. Um, as we, no, I'm sure, no doubt, will more about. Yeah, I think I think there's some verses that clearly don't work well for the. So I want to latch on to something that Zach said, and then ask all three of you to respond to it. So um, Zach was mentioning, uh, or an example from Matthew about starting in the middle of a sentence for a quote and a finish. So let's take um, a. Uh, uh, let's say there, there's a verse that actually begins in the middle of a sentence and ends prior to the end of a sentence. So essentially, the a, a complete sentence is actually started in the verse prior and concludes in the verse following. Uh, and so the verse itself is very uh, clumsy, uh, let's say, if if spoken on its own. So if we allow for a practical KVL to be all verses, how does this... Uh, how is this good for quizzing or how is this bad for quizzing in the context of, let's say, a uh, call it a clumsy response from a quizzer? And I don't mean that the quizzer is having trouble responding, but actually they respond, let's say they respond word perfectly, but in responding word perfectly, the response that they're providing sounds clumsy to spectators. How would that be either good for quizzing or bad for quizzing or maybe not have any benefit? So I think there's a lot of kind of competing interests at play and you keep referencing good for quizzing, um, particularly around the audience. And I think that there are lots of things that would be good for quizzing, like requiring either microphones or a certain level of speaking or a certain articulation of speaking or a certain slowness of pace of speaking right by the quizzers. But all of those have kind of proved to be problematic in implementation um, and have all kind of died in the idea phase, even though it is a fairly common request by audience members to like, can you have the quizzers talk louder, slower, and more clearly because they want to hear what's being said, right? And so I think this would fall into the same way. Like if it's awkward, it's awkward. And um, if it's a detriment, not a detriment, if it's not a positive for the audience, then um, that's almost, that's secondary to whatever other goals that we are seeking. Um, and so I think if the, a practical KVL being of all verses would be a natural outflow if we don't have um, kind of explanatory language on what should be um, written into a finisher quote, because at that point, you're really just testing um, material knowledge based off of the reference and, and or verse breaks. And if that's what you want to be testing, then I don't care about the awkwardness of the material that you then test. Or you know what I mean? Like, um, if we've decided that we care about um, ref, like reference knowledge, that sort of contextual knowledge, and where the verses break, then everything else is of secondary importance. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, um, I'll go ahead and jump in right here. I don't know if you were trying to jump in, Zach, um, but I would say I actually just agree with everything Scott said, even though we uh, were arguing different points here. Um, I would agree that it's secondary, the audience consideration. And I would also agree that the, the question at hand concerns what we want to test. Uh, it, it concerns, like, are we just trying to test material and reference breaks, like, like Scott said. And to be frank, at the internationals level, A-okay, I'm fine with that. I, you know, everybody should know every verse word perfect at internationals. If you don't, you didn't study hard enough. That's my take. Um, but at the district level, I think it's nice to have the, the finish the verses be something a little more succinct and piety and, and like it all keeps in one, one little verse or two little verses. 
And I think that's really helpful for those quizzers who don't memorize the whole material to, to get the, the big gist and the, the most important points of whatever material we're studying. And if, you know, every other finish the verse is something like, you know, then Jesus went to Galilee with his disciples, then I, I don't think we're really accomplishing that mission so well at the, the district. Now that gets a little bit into a separate story, so I'll, I'll end there. Uh, with the other <laughs> district versus internationals. Yeah, I, I I don't have too much to add to that. Those are everything I, I do agree with. Um, and it is, of course, it would be nice if we could figure out ways to make it a lot easier for the for the audience. It's really weird when a, a sentence leaves off and you're you're not sure if the quizzer's done it on a spectator perspective, but all of a sudden the quizmaster says correct. And like sounds like there's at least another couple words that they were supposed to say. Um, that on the other side, though, for, for quizzers, it, we don't allow them to even say a single word into the next verse. Um, and that was, I know that was fairly recent rule change. Um, and so when you, when you start saying these complete sentences, you're, you're creating many more opportunities for the quizzers to be counted incorrect because they said the next word that completes an idea just a little bit more than what the verse by itself does. So there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages on both sides. Um, but I think Scott and Jeremy kind of summed up the big idea pretty well there. It wasn't right. not going into the next verse, the rule change that was reverted. Oh, it may have been. Sorry. Yeah. But it's still like, it's still valid, right? Like um, even if we're not going to be counting quizzers wrong for going into the next verse, if um, a particular question spills over into the next verse grammatically, um, we still could call them out of context if they haven't like gotten the first one correct yet. And if so, for writing questions on grammatically awkward phrasings, um, we are making it difficult for the quizzer who potentially knows the material. And so we're we're basically saying you have to know the verse breaks too um, to be able to get stuff right. And that's a question of if that's what we want to be testing all the time, right? Yeah, indeed. I think All we right. should require quizzers to say the word over when they reach the end of the required verse. So that way we know they know where the verse breaks are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Roger, Roger. All right. Uh, so uh, in the interest of time, we need to move on to the next debate topic. But I started this uh, particular topic on the spectrum of about around an eight. I still am leaning on that side, but maybe not quite as strong. I'd probably call myself a seven at this point on the uh, spectrum. But of course, there are a lot of intricacies within this question that we have not gone down uh, the road on. So, uh, but we'll have to park it there and come back to it maybe at a different time. The next uh, item up for debate is, should there be a practical KVL of a subset of verses no different than any other question type? So in other words, should we, de uh, should we create a, a KVL that is official? Uh, at any level, or should we instead uh, uh, allow there to be a practical KVL of a subset of verses no different than any other question type? So Jeremy, do you want to take the uh, pro side on this one? Yeah, certainly. So uh, to just to be clear about what the question is, so in, we're talking about instead of having an official key verse list that say all of the quiz masters use uh, at any given meet, whether it's at the district level or the international level, we're talking about like having question writers just write their own questions and then, you know, whatever they end up writing is their key verse. Uh, quote unquote. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. And I and I recognize I didn't actually say where I am on I am on the spectrum. So if uh, ten is very much yes in favor of a practical KVL versus an official KVL, uh, whether known or unknown, uh, in other words, public or private, um, that call that a ten, and then the con side is a one. I am probably going to be somewhere around a four. Okay. Uh, well, let me see if I can bring you to a one. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so. Now, I am in favor of official key verse lists, and I know we're going to debate this a little later. So, uh, but in circumstances where there is not an official key verse list, uh, I definitely would prefer that question writers write their own questions on Finnans. And, and my, the, I guess the reason I'm especially, um, I don't know, the reason I, I believe that is that I think quizzers get a better, larger perspective on all the different ways you can write so for example, there's lots of great verses where you've got you've got two in a row and they're both kind of about the same theme and they both like start and end a sentence. They're both great finish the verses by themselves, but they also might be and there's plenty of gray area like that. There's not always one obvious like way to write a verse. And so I think when you've got a, a, a lot of different question writers throwing their input into the ring, then you get quizzers who can see kind of the breadth and variety of questions. Uh, and this is my opinion on other question types. I always preferred it when I was a quizzer uh, at PNW districts when you know, most, of, most of the time quiz masters wrote their own questions. So you kind of had four different questions. That's one in each room. And you got a feel for like, oh, you know, this quiz master writes questions this way and this one writes them this way. And I need to be prepared for all this different stuff, you know, when I get to the higher levels of competition. So I really appreciated that. Uh, and so, yeah, so as again, as we're going to say later, I think at the district level, there's an advantage to official keyverse lists. But I think if there's not going to be one at any level, I prefer prefer question writers to write their own sets and permutations of of uh, finish versus finish this versus two. Um, and something that we haven't we haven't like this is a little perhaps outside of the question you proposed, Griffin, but there could also be circumstances where a district has an official published keyverse list with just verses. And they don't link verses together or say whether they're going to be a finish this or not. And I think in those circumstances, it could be uh, a really good quizzing environment for each uh, you know, question writer to write a different set of finish questions and quote questions. Maybe they're all using the same verses to do it, but maybe they write it differently. Uh, one has a finish the verse where another has a finish these two. I think that could be a good competitive environment. Can I ask a question, Griffin? Yeah. So... Um... Currently, I see three options, which is practical keyverse list, um, official public, and official private. But within either of those, any of those three options, I don't know if we are debating or assuming the existence or non-existence of like criteria, because that would definitely color my my thoughts on all three of those potential options. Well, what do you mean by criteria? Criteria of what would what would be acceptable as a quote or finish beyond what's currently in the new rulebook? Well, there's nothing in the new rule book, right? Well, yeah, very little, yeah. Right, because to me, if there isn't really any language saying, like, what should be a finisher a quote, then I think, um, like, as stated before, every verse should just be written rather than people making their own value judgments. And then at the point where I think we want there to be some definition or criteria for those question types in the rule book or in some document, then I think... Um, it doesn't make sense to have a practical KVL because um, basically a practical KVL based on criteria and also has that also has editing to me is no different from an official, but private KVL that also has um, the criteria and also has editing. 
That's a that's an interesting point because essentially you're you're basically the result is the same. It's just the order of operations. Do you have a private KVL that it, a private official KVL that comes first that then informs the questions that are written and that list is kept private and is debated amongst the question writers, let's say, or maybe created by some other group. It could be whatever, right? Um, versus the, that does not happen, but the editors are still, you. The, the writers and editors of the question set are arguing and debating over the quality of quote and finish. And thus you end up with the resulting uh, list being a practical KVL. So essentially you're, 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 you're arguing that the re end result is exactly the same. It's just the order of operations that are different, right? Correct. And I would also argue like the end result is exactly the same. And I would also argue that the end result is exactly the same, but way, way, way worse if you just don't have the criteria of any kind, because then there's nothing to edit against and there's, there's no consistency um, which I think would be bad. And I, I don't think consistency means uniformity per se, um, but I think there should be at least some goalposts that you have to stay between. Okay, makes sense. Zach, what are you thinking? So this one, this is one of those that is harder because it, it all depends on so many things. And a lot of these topics that we've kind of looked at all change how you look at them based on how you decided the previous question. Um, so the, the subset of verses... I don't know. It to me, it kind of seems one in the same. Um, I agree a lot with what Scott said there. Um, this is one that I probably, if I'm going to use your scale of one to ten, I'm probably closer to the middle of a six. So I'm not super strong on either way. But um, if I were to choose one, I would say no for that. Um, for, for whatever scale you use, I can't remember it now. Um, <laughs> right, right. But. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to articulate exactly why uh, why I would lean one way or another. One of the things I want to try to avoid, and I mean, we're kind of jumping out of the debate here, going meta for a second, and that might help inform what we're talking about within the debate. One of the things I want to not worry about, but I concern myself about is um, sort of the, the shift in expectation, right? So uh, I think where we put the goalposts is, I think there is probably a better place to put the goalposts uh, versus a non-better place, but I'm not exactly uh, super sure that it, that that moving the uh, having goalposts in say one place versus another is going to be a substantial differentiator. What I think matters more is that the goalposts be known ahead of time, right? Um, I know that's going to sound really convoluted. Uh, let me try to you know put this into practical terms, right? If quizzers are studying and preparing to a certain goal set where they are expecting a certain kind of verse, let's say let's say you don't have a an official public KVL, right? And but let's say you have a series of criteria for what is a quote or finish, and that let's say that criteria is not ensconced in the rule book, but is ensconced in sort of either tribal knowledge or a best practices document or it is a practical uh, emergent phenomenon of a particular way of writing a question set, let's say, right? And let's say quizzers get used to that and then they switch environments and they are encountering an entirely different practical KVL from a, a, an entirely different set of, of question writers and an a different sort of emergent phenomenon from that particular uh, quiz set. 
if they're not expecting that, that can be extraordinarily demotivating, despite the fact that both of these scenarios, sort of the prior and the latter, are in conformity with a rule book. And I don't, I want to avoid that sort of demotivating experience, right? So we had talked about at the district level, this is probably not that big of a deal because we have multiple district meets, or I, th I think most districts have multiple district meets. And so quizzers very quickly get used to, you know, this is how we do things at our district, you know, sort of thing. I still think it should be objective for other reasons that we've talked about in other podcasts, but uh, nevertheless, you know, quizzers get sort of into that mindset and we understand it. Then let's say they switch to internationals. It's, if it's very different and they're expecting it and they're aware of that difference, then that's one thing. But if they're not expecting it, I think that can be a problem. And this also happens... I think probably more routinely at inter-district meets where you've got, you know, a district uh, practicing and performing in a particular way. And then when they quiz with another district in an international or inter-district meet, not internationals, uh, the differences sort of expose themselves there. And if they're not expecting it, it can be very demotivating. So can you guys speak to that implication in terms of whether we have a practical KVL versus a non-practical? What would a non-practical one be? be a something official, um, either official public or official private such that the, the official private has been generated off of ideally objective standards, but barring those something at least extremely well-defined. Um, so I think you're hitting on one of my main gripes is a difference in expectations, right? And I think all of my thoughts would be in a an attempt to provide um, very, very similar expectations to everyone. So if there's not language in the rule book, it should be all verses because otherwise, like why someone might assume um, some sort of judgment being made on the part of question writers and some people might not because it doesn't exist in the rule book, right? And so you have a, diff a different expectation. So I would default to the thing where you are not really overriding the rule book. And then on the opposite side of it, um, if you're going to have an official list, whether public or private, um, that's based off of some criteria, you need to work to meet the criteria. And I think, I don't know how to say it, like so, there's some acceptable error bar, but basically like if you have one district that writes a list trying to adhere to the criteria and they have multiple writers and multiple editors and another district does the same, I don't expect them to have like 100% overlap or something, but um there shouldn't be any large deviation. <laughs> See, I don't know how to describe it, but basically like if one district is writing 11% of the verses um, as finisher quotes and the other district is writing um, 87%, like if they're trying to hit the same criteria, that shouldn't happen, right? But one district writing 50% and one, another district writing 61%, like that's probably a lot more acceptable um, and wouldn't result in missed expectations by the on the part of participants. Yeah, I think I think you're hitting at something there, Scott, when you say that like there's some acceptable margin of difference between one question writer's set and another question writer's set that is completely like unavoidable with quizzing and not even a bad thing necessarily because it's good to have variety. Um, and that's not just a finish the verse thing. I know at the last adult quizzing league, I got an error on a CVR um, because I, my, I said the question was like the man who what and the question ended up being what man and i never ever write what man as a cvr uh 
So hopefully no quizzers are, are getting any pro tips from this. I never, ever write that because I just hate the way it's done. Um, but I know that you, Scott, sometimes do. <laughs> and so we're even, you know, we, we kind of were at the same district and we just had different question writing styles. Um, and then, you know, whoever wrote this, the question set for AQL, that question made it in there. And just because I never write questions like that, I didn't guess that. And so, you know, even as an adult now participating in the adult quizzing league, I'm running in question writing style issues that sometimes I get an error. Uh, and that's just the way it is, I guess. And so there's some acceptable like margin of like, yeah, this should all be allowed. This should all be good, considered good question writing. It's just not, uh, you know, 100% the same across the board. But there are issues where people are either not agreeing on what the criteria mean. What does it mean for spiritually? What does it mean for it? Um, and then I think there's other instances question writers aren't even really attempting to hit the criteria. And I think that would be the case where you, you do hear some people say um, that, oh yeah, every verse should be a key verse because it's all the Bible. It's like, well, obviously the rule book implies there should be a subset by the very fact that it's significant. So that I would consider that to be not much of an attempt to try to, to follow the uh, when people write their finished. So I don't know what the solution to that is. I'm kind of explaining how I see the problem. It's either the criteria are not good or not well phrased or people. And I have two things there. One is like, I think if you actually press someone who said that, like every verse is spiritually significant, they don't actually think that the rule book is saying, is, you know, saying that some verses are not spiritually significant. They just want the rule book to say something different, which I think is a very valid conversation to have, right? Sure. Yeah. And at the internationals and, level, even I agree. Sure. Every verse. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it. But that's like a very different conversation. It's different than debating, like, do you think that this verse is spiritually significant? Um, based off of how the rule book is written, which is obviously saying that some are and some aren't. So working under that, do you think that this one is, you know, and I, I can't think of any conversation I've had with someone about like, is this actually spiritually significant where I've come out of it feeling you're like bonkers, you know, but often I have a bad feeling when people say like, oh, it should just be every verse. And it's like, well, if it should, then we should work to change the rule book. But it currently doesn't say that. And so if you do something different, you're screwing over everyone who just wants to do what the rule book currently says. And, and keep in mind that like within whatever error bars, right? And then my second thing was on your CVR, Jeremy, this is a off topic, but you should totally challenge that because there is no defensible reason you should be wrong. Oh, well, my question, <laughs> my question actually turned into a different question. Oh, ah, so, well, so yeah, yeah, no, okay. I, I would agree if it wasn't, if it didn't, uh, I think it would have made it a CR instead of a CR. Ah, then carry on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you make an excellent point there. Is it's not it, it it rubs people the wrong way when you say a verse is not spiritually significant, because you you start to get into the theological of every word is inspired, and that's not the conversation we're trying to have here in quizzing. We're we're trying to define what makes a good key verse, and and so I think just those two phrases just rubs certain people the wrong way, and very the word itself very very justified um but you're right everyone's just looking for a way to define what is a good quote or a good finish the verse and uh we just haven't had that that right phrase um that there so this conversation wouldn't be happening if we did have that right phrase in there right and we have to be very careful when we say the current rule book because the the current current rule book uh the 2018 uh includes the you know spiritually significant phrase the rulebook that is out for ratification does not. Uh, and the reason 
I mean, the, the phrase or the concept of spiritual significance is uh, we moved it from the rule book into a best practices document. So, I mean, it still exists and it's still encouraged to be referenced to, but it's not in the actual text of the rule book because we couldn't figure out a way, at least in version one, to make that objective and functionally equivalent. So we left it out uh, and just moved it into uh you know a place where it still stands it's still a good thing to do uh a good thing to recognize but it, we've left it for a future uh version to try to figure out how to migrate it back into the core rulebook in some sort of objective form well so with that said i want to kind of skip forward a little bit based on where we are with some of this uh some of our conversations uh we might go back to a couple other previous debate topics here, but I want to focus on the idea of assuming that we're going to have some sort of official uh, KVL uh, and and leaving aside how on earth that's going to be created, but assuming that there is a KVL, which is not 100% of the verses, and it is official in the sense that the question writers, the question set adhere to the official KVL, should that KVL be kept secret? Uh, or should it be made public? So uh, for the, we'll call, say the pro side is that it's kept secret or made public is the con side. And I forget who took which side of this debate. Actually, Scott, you were, you were saying you were pro keeping it secret. Is that right? Yep. So I am okay. working under the assumption here that there is some language existing um, to limit these verses, right? Either saying it should be a subset of the verses or something along the lines of complete thought, spiritual significance, um, and then with the subtypes, you know, works better as a pair or for a finish this question starts with an insignificant phrase or, you know, like there's just some existing language. And I think in that world, that existing language limiting finish and quote questions or, or, or rather an attempt to define really good ones um, is just that. Like we're trying to say these are the best ways to write these questions and if that's the case and we have writers that try to do that and editors that enforce it, then I absolutely want quizzers to not be provided with a verbatim list. They just get to accept as 100% what's going to happen. I would rather they also wrestle with, um, do these two verses work better on their own? Do I consider this verse to be a complete thought? Um, because to me, those are ways that they are dealing with the material and beneficial ways that they're, so not just a way that they're, engaging with the material, but also a beneficial way because they're having to dig into um, meaning, context, like does a verse work better with its um, adjacent verse uh, and other kind of other concepts of that nature. And I like that that is part of the competition where if you do a better job at that, you will be rewarded rather than you just get to accept that the list is the way that it is. Because for no other question type, are you ever like at any, at any level of competition, are you ever guaranteed of a finite list, right? And so I remember studying for all kinds of question types where you're like, ah, this one isn't a great question, but it might be asked. And so you like write it and study it. And I, I kind of like that wrestling for quizzers when you don't have the certainty of what's going to be, um, because that really rewards really good material knowledge, really good study, and then really good discipline when it comes to executing your jumps when you don't have 100% certainty on what questions might be coming to you. Okay. Zach, Jeremy. Well, I, I would say start with 
in in theory, I like the idea of of course you want something that can be kept private. Um, we don't have it for anything else. But when you get something that is so specific as a key verse list, I just don't know how that is practically possible to start with. Um, it, all it takes is one season, and the quizzers can narrow down ninety five to ninety eight percent of those those key verse lists simply from all right, verse one has been asked, mark it off my list. That's a key verse. All right, mark, uh, verse 32 has been asked. All right, that's a key verse. So throughout their course of quizzing for a given year, they've now revealed a huge percentage, if not all of the, the key verses possible. And at that point, it's no longer uh, a, a private list. There are people that start to know that list. And you can say it stays private with those quizzers. Like just that quizzer knows that he deserves that. She deserves the effort that she put in um, to finding those. But there's also all those quizzers that, all right, I'm going to share that with the rest of my team. I'm going to share that with my coach. And then you start to get into the process. Well, coach shares it with the team. And all of those are completely legitimate things to do. They put in the work. Um, They're not being provided any advantage from anyone who has a a secret knowledge of the the question set because it's all been public. Um, So, yeah, I guess in theory it would make sense to try to keep a private list. But I think given one season, you, you no longer have a a private list, unless you get into the habit of creating a new private list every single year. But we've already talked about there are, we we're trying to define what's a good key verse. And so those lists probably won't change much year to year um, if you're trying to redefine what's a good key verse in that context. So I think, I think we just don't have the ability to take, to simply keep it private. I think it just becomes public uh, way too quickly and easily. Yeah, and, and I, I, yeah, that's definitely a great point, Zach. I think um, we we don't want to encourage people to just sit there and mark verses off of a list at quiz meets instead of being engaged in the competition and the social environment. Um, I don't think a rule set that encourages you know people to send coaches to all the quiz rooms to check verses off a list is the sort of thing we're encouraging. Beyond that, though, I think um, you know as I've said already during this podcast, I think it's fine to have. Um, to have no key verse list in some circumstances, uh, like we don't at internationals, and I think that's fine. Whereas I do think it's good to have it at the district level. But if you're going to have one, then then I think it's good for the quizzers to know um, which verses you are using because it provides an objective uh, objective set, you know, on on a question type that is not <laughs> with you know again with criteria like spiritual significance that are very vague, um, and uh, and people don't usually agree on what verses qualify. So having an objective standard is really nice at that level. Uh, so if you're going to have one, you might as well make it public. Say these are the verses that are, uh, are good. And of course, uh, at, the, at least at PMW, I know some other districts do this as well. We use the key verse list as a sort of like intro to quizzing kind of thing. So instead of memorizing 800 verses in Matthew, you know, here's this set of, you know, however many, a couple hundred verses. And you can work on these and there will be this one, this uh, one question type. Actually, it's two question types that... Um, you know, we'll only ask on these verses so you can study these. And that's a good way of getting younger quizzers involved. But other districts might not need that, you know, so that, that's sort of PNW specific. Uh, other districts have other means of uh, getting newer quizzers up to speed. But uh, but if we're going to have one, <laughs> regardless of all those uh, those details, I think if there's going to be one, it should be. Griffin, are you wanting to draw a distinction right now between district and interdistrict? Uh, I very soon, but not almost not yet. So, okay. There, there is, yeah, go ahead and jump in. So, um, I think what Zach was saying makes a lot of sense that it's really hard to retain privateness for, um, a a large handful of non nefarious reasons. I definitely agree with that. But to me, 
um, especially for quizzers that don't work to put together their own list, any amount of uncertainty is a pretty big deal. And so even if someone logged every asked question at an interdistrict meet um, and had that list, well, that's they're not guaranteed to be the complete list of verses that are going to be asked as finisher or quotes for that year. And then given an eight-year cycle, question writers change, question editors change, maybe rulebook languages change. And I think that only a very, very small change to that actual list, like if it's um, 450 verses and 900 questions on those verses, if it changes by just a little bit, it's 432. And, you know, um, I think that that's a big deal competitively and it still retains the reward to people that want to dig into the list. Um, And so I think that that would still be a value of something of keeping the list private, even acknowledging that information, some information becomes public over time. And then I think you are absolutely right. Both of you are right that we don't want to provide incentives to teams and districts to track questions um, because some teams and districts might have more of an ability to do that than others. And so I totally agree with that. But I think I don't think you can remove that incentive, um, especially not for all question types. You obviously remove that incentive if you make the list public, Um, but you can't remove it for all question types. So I'm very much in favor of at the end of each internationals, um, every asked question gets sent to every district. And it's kind of a democratization of the data. So if you are a larger district with more resources, it's not like that enables you to better data on what questions was asked. Um, And it doesn't have to be the whole list. It can just be the questions that got asked um, and not every question that existed in the set. And I think that would be a really good idea. Um, And that would completely remove the incentive of tracking questions because everyone gets the same data. For me, I'm looking at this kind of analogously to multiple answer questions. So imagine we're in a world a few years ago when multiple answers were not hobbled uh, as they are today, uh, but they they comprised a enough of a a number of of questions in a in an average quiz that specializing in multiple answer question type was uh, potentially very very good, right? Um, so. You know, an enterprising quizzer can study the material looking for multiple answer uh, question, uh, uh, and I would say they'd be able to identify uh, valid multiple answer questions out of the material probably better than they would be able to identify what could be a quote or a finished question. Would you guys consider that to be fair? Absolutely. I don't know what other people's practices have been writing questions, but I know that for myself, when it comes to anything multiple answer, so a multiple answer um, or a reference multiple answer, basically, if it is valid, I'm writing it, um, which is far below the standard for quote unquote goodness that I um, use for every other question type. So I don't know if it's because there's so few of them or or what, whatever, but I just, if it's valid as a multiple answer, I'm going to write it. Um, I think my reasoning is because it's a multiple answer, that's a huge amount of information to the quizzer. So I'm not confusing them by writing like a weird one or an awkward one, as long as it's valid. But because of that, I think in general, question writers do that. And so I think quizzers can have a very high degree of certainty of what's going to be at, like possible for a multiple answer. Sure. So, I mean, assuming that that's true, you know, it's fairly, it's easier to create a, a, a practical uh, multiple answer list versus a practical KVL. 
And it, let's say if somebody is going to create a, a practical multiple answer list, it lets them uh, get much, much more competitive against the multiple answer type, right? So that they're much more effective at, at answering the multiple answer type, but they're not, I, I don't, this is going to be a very fuzzy subjective way of describing it, but they're not unbeatable at the multiple answer type necessarily, right? They may be, and this is yeah, not a very good way of describing it, but they may be practically unbeatable most of the time, but somebody could get lucky, right? Um, and if they're studying multiple answers as well, you go up against that particular quizzer, you could, you could probably squeak out a little bit. They might dominate multiple answers in general, but but it is still at least a competitive space. And I think the reason it's a competitive space is because when the multiple answer question starts, the quizzer who is hyper-specialized on multiple answers doesn't have 100% confidence that they have exactly the right syllables coming out in a particular way that they're, they're going to be able to jump exactly precisely on the minimum syllables necessary to get the, the question correct, right? They can get pretty close, right? Let's call it like maybe 80%, 90%, something like that. Like their accuracy can be way up there, but they can't know for absolute certain, right? Whereas if you have a, an official KVL that is made public, uh, any a, a quizzer who studies against that KVL can get absolute 100% accuracy on on where they're going to jump they know exactly what syllables to expect and jump for and they they can have a hundred percent confidence in that studying which is going to ratchet up their their jump speeds you know to essentially the the perfect ideal jump speed now is that good or is that bad right um in terms of mission for the program right so i mean it's good in the sense that uh, quizzers are going to be studying a certain number of verses in much, much, much greater detail, uh, and their level of engagement with the program is going to be higher as a result of that. But I think it might be countermission because they stop at the end of the of the key verse list, right? And thus we're not maximizing, I think, the quizzer's potential. Because the quizzer, you know, being able to become hyper-specialized on the KVL, they've demonstrated that they could have done more. They could have memorized the KVL plus one more verse. And it's unlikely that they would have had the motivation to go beyond just the KVL. Does that make sense? And do you guys agree or disagree? And how does that play into your positions? I would disagree that it is a bad thing. For I think, again, the issue here is district versus internationals. At the PNW district level, I think for other districts, though I would imagine similar, we only get a couple of quizzers every year who master the keyverse list as public. Uh, and, and that was even the case a few years ago when our keyverse lists were smaller. We would only get a couple and they would usually do fantastic on them and get rewarded. And I think that's awesome. You know, if you memorized all those words versus word perfect and you even knew like how fast you could jump or, hey, this one chapter only has one quote, these two, so I can jump on the chapter number, those things, like awesome. If they're fluent in on that, it's not counter mission at all for the reasons I stated, Griffin, that it's giving them high engagement with material and they're finding a path to success through mastery of their questions. But again, at the internationals level, um, <laughs> that everybody should know every verse. So, so I don't think it's serving any, any mission, um, but, but it is a concern that, that you want the key verse list to be of a good size so that you're not encouraging quizzers to stop at some arbitrarily small number of verses. You want that small subset of key verses to be, um, you know, a, an amount that is going to challenge kind of your uh, newer and, and mid-tier quizzers, uh, th that it's going to be difficult for them to get all those down. 
And then from there, you know, hey, maybe they think now I can go for the whole material because that that's, you know, our mission strategy. Yeah, I think um, speaking specifically for interdistrict or internationals level, I don't think there's a downside competitively. I think what we saw with multiple answers is because you could know the list with such a high certainty because you could write your own and just it was close. It was very close. Um, you saw this. And because there was two to seven in every quiz, you saw the speeds, the jump speeds get really, really high. Um, and they got so high to the point that it depressed accuracy, probably below a lot of the other question types. And I think that that is totally fine because that is the free market aspect of Bible quizzing, right? You can have two quizzers that know the exact same amount of material, but if one decides to jump 0.1 syllables faster and accept um, the additional risk, they are free to do so. And I think because there were so many multiple answers, enough people did memorize the list and there was so much, um, what's the word? Um, the point at which it became unique um, was so quick that um, it was just hard to be perfectly precise to that speed. And so if you got, you know, a quarter of a syllable fast from optimal, you're probably going to be stuck with a 20% accuracy rate. And so um, it required really, really good precision. And the reward was so great at trying to hit it that a lot of people tried. And I think a similar thing would happen with finishing quotes. Um, but you see on anything with a reference, so like a quote or a CVR, a very similar thing happens where um, the quizzers who are jumping on it know that if they get the reference, it's probably a 90% chance that they're going to get it right. And so everyone is playing with that optimal edge. And a lot of like the bulk of the errors on those questions, internationals come from people who didn't get enough of the reference to know the reference. Um, it wasn't that they got the reference and didn't get the rest of it. And so I'm fine with competitively people playing with, you know, the speed and the expected accuracy and all that. And I think that's also why we, when you talked about something being counter mission, whether or not it was phrased as being counter mission, I think enough people didn't like that quizzers could memorize a pretty small multiple answer list, especially compared to all other question types and do quite well at internationals. And so there was a desire to reduce the reward from that relatively low amount of effort and increase and by doing so, increase the reward um, on other question types um, because they required more effort. And so that's why multiple answers went from two to seven to, is it one to two, um, yeah, was kind of trying to swing that pendulum from amount of work to get a certain reward um, back the other way. Zach, any thoughts on this one? <laughs> uh, I, there's, I don't know if there's much to be added there. It, it is... Um... It really does come come down to to what is the mission and purpose and, and goals of of everything, um, and I think Jeremy and, and Scott articulated a lot of those concerns both ways uh, quite well. Oh, and to to get into some semantics, uh, well, one semantic. Jeremy, you said everyone should know every verse internationals. I would push back on that a little bit. <laughs> I would say we want to create a, a competitive environment where if you know more verses, you do better. <laughs> Um, but we want everyone to know every verse, but I don't think that that is a current reality and it probably isn't a future reality. So I think I, I wouldn't want to make policy. I'm saying policy in like a high flute and kind of way, but I wouldn't want to make competitive structure decisions, assuming people know every verse. Um, I like doing things like changing back to a signed seat bonus or, um, reducing multiple answers so that it creates more of a reward for people that do know, know more of the material. 
Sure, that's a, that's a fair clarification. Perhaps I'm I'm stating my case a little harshly there. I, and that, that's kind of the, the gist of what I mean. You clarified it well. For sure. <laughs> uh, like at the, at the district level, I think it's absurd to throw sixth graders into quizzing and be like, well, if you don't know every single verse in the gospel of Matthew minus these few chapters, then you're just, you know, you're just not good for anything and you can't get any <laughs> questions, you know? So I think it's really good to encourage a, a competitive structure that that drives them to want to study some smaller subset of it so it's not overwhelming to them. Whereas at the internationals level, if you were good enough to qualify, I feel like, you know, you get a question wrong, eh, you should probably have studied hard, you know, and like, and that's the competitive structure I wanted at internationals. So it's just a different emphasis, like you said, on um, not like, oh, we should look down on quizzers who don't know a verse or two. That's not at all what I mean. And I have a quick question, actually, and I'm trying, I tried to look in my old rule books here and I, I can't find it. So it may not be something that was in the actual rule book and it might've been something in our district. Um, but at least in our district, we had a rule that uh, questions couldn't be used more than once in a given tournament. Um, and that it would reset at the end of the, the meet or at the end of the tournament. Um, and I think Scott, you started to talk on that where you do get that incentivized people to go through and cross off lists because they knew it wasn't going to be asked for the rest of the meet. Um, it, but we found a rule, and I, again, this might be in our district, where now question that certain interrogative can be asked in question or in quiz number one and quiz number three, um, even though they're identical, um, just to de-incentivize that I, the, the whole idea that a question can't be asked, um, right. or that you would want to track that. And I can't remember if that was a rule book thing or if that was a, a Great Lakes thing. It was. So it was under the international section in the rule book mm. um, where a question could only be asked once in either the whole meet or during the prelim round. And it changed a few times, but it definitely changed because mm -hmm. of Western PA where it was just like, well, let's remove this as a hard requirement, even though as question set generators, we may make it so, but we won't like it won't be a hard requirement that it will never appear again. Right. And so it, it, it to attempt to remove some of that incentive to tracking. And I know that Western Canada has a local rule where um, you can't have two questions from the same verse in the same quiz. And so mm. that would be an attempt to just have um, as wide a range of material covered as possible in a given quiz. Right. And so it's very obvious, like why that was adopted. You know, mm -hmm. we don't want to test oh, yeah. the same verse twice in the same quiz to the same people because, you know, it, it it's a little bit limiting. And I think you could argue the opposite where it just generate stuff randomly, but I think either or is fine. I've and then all again, oh, go go ahead. sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that all goes again. That that's their mission and and, and full goals is to show that, that full breadth of knowledge between the, as much content as possible, um, as opposed to that random nature of things. So they're trying to see. Let's show that our quizzers know as much as we possibly can. Um, and those are just different goals different districts have, and it changes in the district as time passes. I was going to say, I had a moment, and this was not the first meet of the year where there was only a, a few chapters of material. It was at the end of a, of a quiz year where I had a quote question followed by a finish the verse on the exact same verse. Um, and the same quizzer jumped up and, and quoted it word perfect both times. And um, I think it's kind of fun and quirky that those moments happen, but I can absolutely understand <laughs> Western <laughs> Canada's rule there because it's a little weird. You know, it's just like, so they memorized one verse and they got half a quiz out. Not the same so, question. The only rule is that it can't be the same question twice in a quiz. Mm -hmm. yep. but, uh, right. <laughs> so playing devil's advocate here. So, I mean, 
you know, we've, we're talking about emergent phenomenon. You know, if, we, if we've got a practical KVL, we're talking about an emergent phenomenon from a question set. There is similarly going to be an emergent phenomenon of a multiple answer list, an emergent phenomenon of a, you know, situation list, and so on and so on and so forth, right? If you have a question set of sufficient volume, where sufficient is some, you know, very big number, right? Um, 8,000 questions, whatever, like, like, you know, some, some very big number. Is there a harm in actually making the official question set public? So I'm actually really interested on this one um, because I, I would think that there is a harm, but then I, and then I stopped to think about the question types and like I wrote questions just a ton when I, when I competed and what would I have gained by being given a question set? I'm not sure I would have gained that much. I think I would have gained something at the edges of the specialties. So MACRs and MACVRs, like like knowing for sure that there's one in this chapter or one in this verse or things like that. Um, But the more that I've talked about it with people, um, I don't know that we have a ton to gain by um, holding back that tiny bit of advantage to people that would take advantage of it. Because there are lots of other aspects of the competitive side of quizzing where there is advantage to be gained, like by making an alphabetical finish list, for example, um, that only a very small percentage of people do. Um, And the fact that not everyone does it, or even a very small percentage of people do it, doesn't mean that we should remove it um, so that it's now more even or anything. Um, and so I think we might not lose anything by making it public and might gain something just through the simplicity of like, everyone can look at the questions and say like, Hey, this one looks invalid. This one looks terrible. Can we talk about it? Um, so I think making it public would definitely provide a really tiny advantage to a really small amount of quizzers. And I'm not sure that that con outweighs pros but also i remember jeremy one year you studied very hard and made a list for finish and quote questions and then did very well to internationals a lot of the questions asked um, were on the list um and i'm just curious how you think your study would have been different had you been given a list and if you think your competition um from other people would be different if there was a finite public list out there and you know let's say that this list was i don't know 70 percent of the verses or something yeah, the funny thing, Scott, it, it's funny that you asked me specifically, because I remember one of the uh, the year you coached me, my senior year, um, towards the end, just like a month or two before international, I had already written all my question lists for the year. I had already made huge progress in studying them. And then suddenly international, like the CQLT or whatever it was called at that time, um, came out with a, a list of questions. And you and I misunderstood it at first. We thought it was an exhaustive list of questions. And it was, in, in fact, it was just a practice. It's a small, small subset of question set. But I was freaking out because I was like, I put all this time, probably 50 plus hours <laughs> into these question lists and they're worthless now because there's a, a, a canonical list of questions. Um, so I remember freaking out about that. And thankfully we discovered quickly, it was just a practice and carried on as usual. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but I think I, I'm going to disagree with, with your take on this one, Scott. I think there's a major negative uh, to publishing a question set, and that would be that we don't quiz quizzers on question sets. We quiz them on the Bible. Um, and the additional work of putting together a question set requires the quizzer to interact with the material in such a way that they're asking, oh, 
what sort of questions be good to ask and what uh, what what makes a finish the verse spiritually significant if i jump on this verse um and you know if i jump on therefore what is the most likely guess on a finish these two verses you know i might only have a 10 minute chance there's going to be some verses that are better than others that are going to be more spiritually or better as a and i think that for me and i can't speak for everybody but i know that that there are others who have had this uh, the process of writing a question is in and of itself engaging with the material i think if we just throw a question set out there you're going to get circumstances where quizzers don't memorize the whole material they just memorize you know the multiple answer list and bam they're on the internationals team and maybe they only get one or two questions now with the reduced question requirements for multiple answers but you know they they didn't actually study the material they studied a list and now they can get questions situations would also be the same way with that um situations can can be really tricky because you can go you know you can be required to go back like five verses to find the place they're talking to answer where was it said uh and if you have a canonical question set though uh sorry i keep throwing that word canonical uh, around but but by that i mean like uh like a one official set that that everybody knows the questions will be asked and i think if you just have that that one set you're going to have like situation specialty quizzers who are like, oh, I don't need to know this whole context very well to answer the, this question because I know they're only going to ask this quote as a who said it with Jesus's answer. I don't need to know that four verses ago it mentions there were injuries. Um, and so I, I definitely think you're going to get circumstances where quizzers memorize lists instead of the material. And by requiring quizzers to make their own lists, uh, we require them to, to do both. So can I play devil's advocate real quick? Sure. Um, I think you're right that making a list as a quizzer is a form of study and we would rather them do that. So now I coached a handful of years internationals and I would very much prefer quizzers make their own question lists for specialties that they were pursuing. But if I knew that they weren't going to do that, I would give them a list. Do you think that that is counter mission? Uh, I don't think it's counter mission what coaches do unless they're okay. So I don't think what coaches do is counter mission unless it's just like obvious poor sportsmanship or anything. So I think that would go under the category of, you know, coaching strategy. Um, I would say if you have quizzers who just hate the idea of writing a question list <laughs> for whatever reason, then you're probably helping them a little more to give them one. Although I would also say, I don't think, I don't know if a quizzer is not going to go to the trouble of making one, are they going to go to the trouble of studying one? Uh, I don't know. You coached more years than I did. So I, I would just jump in real fast here. I, I do the same thing. I, if I have a quizzer that is uh, lacking in motivation or uh, is discouraged because of jumping speeds or, or any number of cases, um, that's where I've worked with them to try to create those lists. And I always keep one in my back pocket. It's the X's. Anything that starts with an EX is super key 99% of the time. And it's super hard as a quiz master to stop on any X word, accept, uh, exact, any one of those. Um, and so I've used those sort of tools to help encourage them. And I've seen it then after they've gotten this list down, they're like, oh, I can actually do this. And then it's pushed them into studying harder or creating their own lists that scale up that X list is only ever, I don't know, 15 or 20 uh, keywords in that, uh, in that list, but they can start to expand their own list. Like, all right, maybe I can do 50 or maybe I can do a uh, hundred. And then they're starting to like, Oh, a hundred's really not that far off from club 150. Um, so I've seen it kind of just exponential growth from there. Um, or at least as a kicking uh, off point uh, for encouraging that, that study from uh, a quizzer. And it all started because I gave them a super simple list to, to work on and, and master. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah, for sure. I think overall, what 
to me, what would be the largest pro of a public question set is um, the quality of that question set, I think, would rise quickly because it's public. Um, and I think that the quality of the question set is a very, very big deal. And I would be willing to take some of the other cons um, if the question set is very high quality. And so if you could if you could guarantee me a high question set quality um, and it's private, to me, that's the best of both worlds. Now, would a, a good alternative, because I, I see, the, I see the, the great pros of making it public because you do get a great list. Um, but I also see that you don't want them just studying the list either. Um, so what is the idea of not having a separate local district international set and just say everybody gets 100% access to these? It's still supposed to be kept private at the district coordinator who are the question or the quiz generators. Um, but that would then open up that, that broader list and, and those subpar poor questions get caught quicker because it's not internationals that we're first seeing this question. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea that the trouble we're, we're, we're bordering into OPSEC sort of mm. stuff, operational security kind of things where it's like, you know, we've got this list or we, so we, we have this question set. We need to keep it a uh, secret. We're going to open up the number of people who, who are able to see it. And the, the, the broader you make that list, the less secure the list is going to be um, just by, you know, the nature of, of, you know, human nature and normal, normal activities and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm torn because I can see both sides of this. Um, but unfortunately, we are way over time, so we we need to uh, cut things short a little bit. We still do have a couple of other discussion questions and debate questions that we could get into, but we're going to have to save those, I think, for another time. Um, yeah, definitely a part two. Uh, so with that all said, I want to thank everybody uh, for participating. Uh, Zach and Jeremy, thank you especially for uh, joining uh, Scott and I. And I want to remind everybody that if you agree, or even most especially if you disagree with anybody who said anything on this particular podcast or any of the uh, episodes that we have uh, recorded, we definitely want to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can and should follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And on the Slack Bible Quizzing forum, we are under the pound inside dash quizzing uh, uh, sequence channel, whatever, whatever it's called. And with that, I want to say thank you, Zach, Jeremy, and Scott, and thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. And if you liked this format where we're, some of us are forced to take an opposing view or an unpopular view or the minority view, please let us know if there are other topics you would like us to do the same format on. I'd like to debate Griffin on the authorship of Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> I think we agree, actually. Oh, oh there's, we got to find something. It'll be fun. Yeah, we should find something. Now.